This is a diet of Brussels from a slightly windy shed, which is now my office. It's been a while since uh, I've talked to you uh, about sausages, and uh, I'd love to be able to update you that we have uh, a resolution of that situation. But uh, one of the joys of uh, Brexit is that uh, it continues to be left in a very problematic situation. So rather than try and go through the ins and outs of what has been happening on uh, the Brexit front, because largely there's been not much that's happened, uh, the uh, command paper that the UK produced uh, a week ago uh, on Northern Ireland asking for a standstill and a, a renegotiation has fallen on uh, not deaf ears but ears that have heard and have heard nothing new in the EU. The suggestions are ones that were made uh, previously during the withdrawal agreement negotiations and uh, they're not grounded in a very clear rationale for the EU to upset the deal that it already has in place. And I think that's maybe a useful uh, point to work from. When we're thinking about negotiations and about uh, international agreements, we have to remember the importance of our uh, what you have versus what you might have. Um, and the general uncertainty that surrounds international agreements means that if you have something, then that is worth uh, intrinsically uh, more than a possibility of what there might be. So in this pr practical application of that idea, uh, the existence of the withdrawal agreements and the Northern Ireland Protocol is a material fact. It comes with uh, an agreement by both parties, uh, nominally, that they will uh, abide by and respect that agreement. And that agreement provides for a uh, s permanent solution for Northern Ireland. It provides for a dispute settlement mechanism. It provides for an implementation mechanism. It provides for all of the things that uh, the parties uh, decided that they needed at the time of signing, at the end of 2019. Now that is valuable. Uh, to both parties because it's actually there. Whereas, whilst we might say the contents of that agreement is less than perfect, and I, I think that's undeniable, that nobody thinks that this is the ideal way that they would go about things. If either party, either the EU or the UK, had their choice uh, and they could just force on the other one whatever it is they wanted, they would not have signed this document. However, they can't force on each other uh, a particular outcome. Instead, they've had to negotiate and compromise. So, this is suboptimal 
in the sense that it is not a complete embodiment of what either party wants. However, it is still better than any of the other options that were on the table at the time of negotiation. And that's the key point, is that uh, it's not about the absolute uh, goodness of uh, an outcome, it's about the relative goodness. And as long as the negotiated outcome is not as bad as the non-negotiated outcome, then uh, that is uh, what you should go for. Um, in both cases, you've got bad outcomes, uh, but it's just not as bad in one scenario versus another. And for the, for the EU, this is not something, this is not a topic that you know wasn't given due consideration. There was an awful lot of negotiation and debate about different models for Northern Ireland through 2017, 2018, 2019. We went round the houses many, many times. And uh, it's not as if there is some kind of amazing reconceptualization that had never been thought about before. And so it was with this command paper that this idea of mutual enforcement, that each side would uh, enforce the other's rules, was one that was discussed at the time and was felt to be problematic. Not least, uh, it's becoming increasingly problematic because it relies on, a lot on trust. As we know, trust is one of the things that has taken a real uh, hammering uh, during this process. So if you don't trust the other party, uh, generally, uh, there's no reason you would trust them specifically on something as important as uh, implementation of rules, uh, collection of duties and of taxes as appropriate. So all of this really uh, highlights that uh, absent a strong and clear benefit to the EU, that uh, there's no incentive then to uh, even start to negotiate uh, a renegotiation of the protocol or any other part of the withdrawal agreement or indeed the trade and cooperation agreement. This seems to have uh, failed to have... Uh, actually, no, that's not fair. I, I think... Uh, Number 10 know perfectly well that that is the situation. Uh, but that is different from uh, being uh, unwilling to continue to p pursue this line of argument. And the reason that the EU pushes, uh, the UK continues to push this line of argument is not so much that they think that they've uh, had a bright idea that nobody's thought of before, but rather because it's part of a broader piece. Now, as you may well have seen, there's been a lot of discussion about why the government would knowingly push something that is not going to be acceptable. And really, there are only two good uh, reasons for this. One is that uh, this is some kind of it's more Machiavellian interpretation, is that, that there's uh, a device here to try and uh, foment... Uh, public unrest within Northern Ireland 
are ahead of the assembly elections next year so that uh, unionists who don't support the uh, protocol uh, operating at all win a majority and that as a result uh, when it comes to the consent vote in 2024 that uh, then they will use that as the uh, building block for uh, denying uh, the majority approval that's needed uh, for consent uh, and in that way will disapply uh, the trade provisions of the protocol. Now that model is I think debatable at best. Uh, it assumes that uh, problematizing the protocol leads to more votes for people who don't like the protocol or want to see it disapplied. Now, there might be an argument for that in unionist circles, but uh, it's evident that there will be uh, a counter-reaction to that, which is those people who do see the protocol as uh, a lifeline or as beneficial, um, and particularly if there is some time for uh, people in Northern Ireland to see that they still have access to the single market and that this uh, is shielding them from some worse effects of uh, what might happen, that you might then see uh, a push towards more people who do support uh, the protocol. And even if you did get a unionist majority uh, in uh, the elections, that doesn't mean that those people will actually vote for a, a protocol. Uh, withdrawal or suspension um, and again uh, we might think here about well what is it that uh, is the alternative if you look at uh, article 18 of the protocol which talks about consent it reminds everyone that this doesn't uh, that if, the, if consent is not given it doesn't uh, negate any other obligations particularly those under the, uh, the Good Friday Agreement um, and it also requires the EU and the UK to present uh, necessary measures within two years uh, to uh, address that withdrawal of consent. So uh, if you assume that there is still the same obligation to the Good Friday Agreement, which there would be, uh, because nobody's talking about repudiating that, and uh, you know, if you read the command paper from the British government, then... Uh, it's very firm indeed about the importance of the Good Friday Agreement. The, then you still have the same uh, bilateral uh, context for uh, Irish uh, relations uh, of uh, various dimensions. You still have the same obligations on the EU to maintain the integrity of its single market, and you still have the same obligation on the British government to maintain territorial integrity of the UK which are the three elements that produce the protocol in the first place. So rejecting the protocol or refusing to give uh, consent to another period of application doesn't actually solve the problem. And so if we're thinking about uh, members of the Assembly in Northern Ireland in 2024, they may have been elected on a platform to say we reject it, but uh, that doesn't mean that they are likely to have uh, an answer. And even if they did have an answer that they thought was uh, a possibility, there's no guarantee, they have no way of uh, obliging the EU and the UK to sign up to that alternative measure. So, 
I think the the Machiavellian argument that this is about destabilization with a view to engineering a, a, a removal of consent strikes me as far-fetched. Although, as I look back through some of the earlier episodes in this podcast, uh, it's quite a lot that seems far-fetched. So maybe we keep it in the back of our minds, but I'd, I'd be surprised if it does come to that, or if that is indeed the plan, which is maybe uh, more to the point. What strikes me as a much more likely explanation is that the British government is still in the same position that it's been in for pretty much the whole of the Brexit process, namely that it doesn't know what it wants. And as such, it's trying to maintain as much room for manoeuvre as possible. The thrust of the command paper was, let's talk, let's renegotiate. But as part of that was also a standstill on uh, the situation. So that means maintaining grace periods, uh, pausing any legal actions uh, currently in chain, of which there are uh, two, both uh, by the EU against the UK. And if you went down that route, the only thing you could be sure of is that that would mean more time in which the status quo applies. And that would be to the benefit of the UK, because the grace periods are there supposedly to allow the UK to adjust, which it doesn't seem to be doing, um, and uh, stopping legal action, uh, maybe uh, delays the point at which the UK is uh, uh, nominally obliged to comply. So from the EU's perspective, uh, standstill and renegotiation is problematic not just for the renegotiation part but also for the standstill because if you get to a point where you say well we've been talking for two years and we still haven't got there but hey look have you noticed how we've managed three years to bumble along with things as they are why don't we just keep it like this permanently then that starts to uh, unpick uh, some of the provisions of the protocol and once you can start doing that, in a soft version, it means that you can just uh, try and go down a route of, well, let's have some flexibility, some latitude on our obligations. Uh, in a harder version, the British government's able to say, well, look, you know, we just kind of keep picking away. Uh, you gave us a grace period on that. Do we really need to do this? What about that other thing? So it's a kind of uh, a kind of uh, attempt potentially to. Uh, weaken the force of uh, the protocol over time. And in so doing, it allows the UK to get to a point where it has a sense of what it is that uh, it wants from all of this um, and you know, develop a more comprehensive and viable plan. To be at that stage, five years in after a referendum, is are sadly all too believable. Um, the one thing that I've constantly talked about in this podcast and will continue to talk about is the lack of strategic intent. What is Brexit for? And so if we're thinking about where we go from here, I think we have to think not so much about the protocol uh, not so much about either the withdrawal agreement or the trade and cooperation agreement, but rather the totality of uh, British 
foreign policy uh, and indeed domestic policy. You know, what kind of society does the UK want to be? Uh, what kind of role does it want to have in the world? And then from those kind of strategic views, you can work down to, well, what does that translate into in terms of a relationship with uh, the EU, with the Republic of Ireland? What does that mean for how we handle Northern Ireland? And the failure to do that is both understandable and deeply problematic. In terms of next steps, I think we're not likely to see any great change. Uh, at best, over the summer, uh, we're going to see a, a standstill. Um, nobody looks like they're making any great moves. Certainly uh, on the European side, they're, they're kind of the summer break has already kicked in and uh, anything before September I think is very unlikely. Even on the UK side, I think we've seen a, a bit of a let's leave things uh, hanging uh, and we'll come back to it uh, in the autumn uh, when we've got more bandwidth. But the prognosis doesn't look that positive. With both uh, the current Prime Minister and with uh, Lord Frost uh, as point uh, person on uh, matters European, it's hard to see how there'll be any change, both in terms of UK policy and in terms of EU response to that. And again, here we come back to a question of trust, that trust-based models are difficult and it's hard to see how the EU is going to shift uh, in its view of the UK unless and until it sees very demonstrable efforts by the UK to uh, try and make things work. And that maybe is the one thing that has been uh, absent in uh, the whole of 2021. The UK has talked a lot about wanting to change the protocol or renegotiate it or get rid of it. But what it hasn't talked about is, well, we've signed up to it and we're going to give it our best shot. And then as a subsequent step saying, well, we've given it our best shot and we've really tried everything we can to make this work, but it's not working. Now we need to talk about changing it. That would clearly be a much more productive uh, avenue. So... The Irish issue, the Brexit issue, is going to remain as a running sore in uh, British politics for the time being. And uh, I think unless we, uh, or until the point we get a new uh, government, uh, probably of uh, different party political complexion, uh, I don't really see that we're going to be moving very far on this. A final thought before we wrap up for uh, what I'm lovely going to call summer break is uh, to think about some things that are going to become more important uh, in the autumn apart from the protocol. Central amongst these is going to be the question of citizens' rights. We've now gone past the end of uh, the registration period for settled status for EU nationals in the UK. Uh, equivalent periods have ended in several uh, EU member states for UK nationals and we're going to have some further deadlines in uh, September and October and as a result we're going to start to see and we've already seen one or two cases 
issues of people who have not registered or in some cases have registered but uh, there's some other issue where problems uh, arise and those problems are not going to be just problems they're going to be very uh, life-changing uh, events and we're likely to see cases of people being removed from uh, the country in which they uh, reside in uh, issues of access to uh, public services, social security, health, welfare, education, all of which are potentially uh, very large uh, volumes of people. So if you cast your mind back to uh, the Windrush uh, scandal uh, a few years ago uh, here in the UK, uh, there we had many hundreds of people who were uh, caught up in that. Uh, we're now talking here about somewhere in the region of uh, millions of uh, EU nationals, many more than was originally thought, uh, residing in the UK or claiming settled status, which uh, points to uh, tens, uh, maybe even hundreds of thousands of EU nationals who have not uh, done uh, the necessary paperwork. The initial signs, I have to say, have not been too positive uh, on that front. We've had one or two cases that have been reported in the media uh, about trouble uh, re-entering the UK, um, issues around paperwork and uh, landlords uh, being concerned about uh, signing people up to leases or maintaining those leases. And uh, I think we're likely to see a lot more of those cases. Now, if any government is minded to be difficult about this, and again, it's not just a UK issue, it's going to be an EU member state issue as well, then I think we have a lot of potentials for some really inflammatory rhetoric and potentially action on that front. And if that can't be resolved, then that opens up a second substantial front for... Uh, disagreement and potentially renegotiation uh, being opened up on uh, the withdrawal agreement. And here you can start to see the cross linkages that if you end up needing to have some renegotiation of citizens' rights, then why can't we also talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol, etc, etc. So I think that's one to keep uh, an eye on over the summer and into the autumn. Um, we've had some minor issues around the financial settlement where the EU's calculation has come in substantially uh, by which I mean maybe uh, four or five billion more uh, euros than the UK's calculation had said and uh, whilst I think there's been a bit of pushback from the UK we've seen that actually the EU's uh, calculation has not been challenged too uh, fully, mainly because uh, the method of calculation is one that is pretty transparent within the treaty uh, and uh, I think that uh, the UK is just going to swallow that one without too much fuss as we go along. But again, I may be wrong and it may be that that just becomes another uh, topic uh, to uh, damage uh, the relationship. So in short, uh, it's a summer where things don't look too stable. 
where uh, the main glue that seems to be holding things together is that the alternatives look even worse. And frankly, I think we should assume that that is not a good situation to be in. And this maybe is the, the final point, that just because uh, there's no better alternative, it doesn't mean that this alternative is durable uh, and will stick. So I think we need to be prepared for further disruptions uh, in uh, the months and the next couple of years. Uh, and only once we can get through this period uh, will we know if this model of the withdrawal agreement uh, and the trade and cooperation agreement is one that is likely to be durable into the medium term. But as uh, several of my academic colleagues like to point out, there's nothing so permanent as temporary. And with that in mind, I will let you have a good summer and I will talk to you again in September.